going to go ahead and uh, grab a seat. We're continuing our way uh, through the book of Exodus this morning, and uh, we're coming to a very large chunk of Scripture, uh, Exodus 19 all the way through chapter 24, but uh, we're going to do like a 10,000-foot flyover, and uh, we've broken it down just to highlight a few things about this section of the book of Exodus. So I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from the book of Exodus. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law of the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning and we uh, beg that you would help us to understand uh, this moment in your relationship with your people and that it would change us. We pray that you would meet us by your spirit 
uh, in this time and that we would understand something of your glory and your grace and your holiness and your calling on our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the story so far in the book of Exodus is the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God heard their cry, and he raised up Moses as a deliverer. And then God sent the plagues, and God parted the sea. And as we looked at last week, God sustained and trained his people in the wilderness. And now we come to another pivotal moment in the unfolding story, the giving of the law at Sinai. Now, things are playing out just as God said. I just want to remind you that uh, many months ago, uh, Moses had met God in the burning bush at the foot of this very mountain. And if you remember, this is what God said. Moses, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. That moment has arrived. Moses has brought the people here, and this is another episode of holy ground. They're encountering the presence of God, only now it's not just a bush that's on fire. The whole mountain is ablaze. It's an inferno. And we're told in some of the details that we didn't read this morning that the mountain actually shakes and trembles, and a voice thunders from it so that all the people quake. And they beg for Moses to be their mediator. Now, right off the bat, some of us find this a little bit unsettling because we tend to think of God as cuddly and soft, right? That cuddly and soft God, or or, or we think he's someone we can casually consider or maybe just skeptically probe. But God is holy, holy, holy. He is no one to trifle with. Which is why when you read the details of this story, it's like there's yellow police tape all around the mountain. When Moses was strangely attracted to the burning bush, God says, hold up, don't get any closer. And when the people come to the foot of Mount Mount Sinai, it's like, do not enter, stand back. Because God is a holy God. Now, you got to ask, like, is God just trying to like scare his people? I mean, is is that what he's doing? And no, that's not what he's doing. He's just being himself. This is who he is. He is God Almighty. He is the righteous judge. He is the Holy One. And I just want to say, because we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, is that if you do not come to grips with the holiness of God, you will never understand his love. You'll turn his love into sentimental mush. And that won't change your life. God's love is tenacious. It is powerful. It is overwhelming. Because he is the holy God and the righteous judge. But, and this is vitally important, he is also the God who makes covenant. Exodus 19 through 24 is like God's DTR with his people. Define the relationship. Y'all are familiar with that phrase, right? Or did I just age myself out? God is laying out the terms of the relationship, how they're going to relate to him, how they're supposed to relate to one another as his people. And there's two main blocks in this section. One we're very familiar with, the Ten Commandments. That's Exodus 20. It's the basic terms of the relationship. 
And they really boil down to loving God and loving neighbor. But what follows in the next few chapters is 52 commands. And these 52 commands are often referred to as the book of the covenant, fleshing out the 10 commandments and instructions about worship, about societal justice, about how God's people are to live together. And if you want to boil it down in a a phrase, God is giving his people his rules. Now, as the late Tim Keller was fond of pointing out, the average modern person has a problem right here. Some people just say, surely at this stage in human history, we've gotten beyond religion of rules, right? God thundering from Sinai. Haven't we moved on to religions based on love, not law? And in fact, some of you might be saying, isn't Christianity about love, not the rules? And as Keller loved to point out, that is actually a very simplistic attitude, Now, on the one hand, there are an awful lot of people, religious people, for whom rule-keeping is pretty much the totality of what they do. And I don't have to let you know, uh, they tend to be very dour and unpleasant people, uh, judgy and critical, uh, spirituality that feels dead and lifeless. And I can see that in my life sometimes. But on the other hand, more and more what you see is a lot of people who have a faith and a spirituality And the law has nothing to do with it. There's no obedience in the spirituality. There's no obligation. There's no duty. There's no rules. Because the average modern person tends to believe that either the rules are what saves you. They show you what you have to do to be a good and moral person in order to be saved and receive divine blessing. Or the rules are something you have to get beyond. But both are incredibly simplistic. And this is why this moment is so important in the history of God's people. Because the biblical view of the rules is much more nuanced and much more multifaceted. And I would say much more beautiful than anything we've just talked about. And what I want to do this morning, and I've been given not a lot of time because of the congregational meeting, is I want to spend a few moments meditating on this section of scripture, flying over it at 10,000 feet, So that we can better understand the rules of the relationship and how they fit into the covenant that God makes with his people. And if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, I want you to get this first point. The rules weren't given to save us, but they were given to shape us. Let's break that in two. They were not given to save us. Many of us look at verse 5 of chapter 19. And we trip up here because we see the if, if you obey, if you will keep. And we fill in the blanks with, then I will love you. Then you will be saved. Then you will be my people. But that's not how this message from God begins. Go back to verse four. He says to his people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you. To myself. He's saying, Do you you remember what I did for you? You remember how I rescued you, right? You saw it with your own eyes. And I did it all out of love for you. And if you look at chapter 20, verse 1, when God actually starts giving the Ten Commandments, what is the first thing he wants them to hear? What do ex-slaves need to hear first? 
It's not, here's what you have to do. It's, I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out. I have set you free. These are the first words of the covenant. And there's a whole history behind these words. A history that goes back all the way to God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. A relationship in which God has acted to rescue and redeem by his grace. And this is the important thing to note. The foundation of Christian ethics is redemption. They begin with God saying who he is and what he's done. And obedience is a grateful response to his mercy and his love. It's really important to note the order here. He doesn't say, obey me and then you can belong. He says, you belong to me. So now here are my rules. Salvation is foundational. Redemption is foundational. But having been saved and rescued, we are called to live a life worthy of our calling. A life that honors the salvation we have received. The rules aren't given to save, but they are given to shape us. See, when God says in verse 5, if you listen to my voice, if you keep my covenant, he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In that language, keep my covenant, it means remain faithful to me. And it looks backward and forward at the same time. It looks back to the story of Abraham, right? This is the continuation of that story. And what was Abraham called to after God made his big fat promises to him. He said, keep my covenant. Remain in relationship to me. Remain faithful to me. But the story is now moving forward. Reaching a new chapter in the story of God's covenantal love. Just as God called Abraham to keep his covenant. He's now calling Israel to keep covenant. And all of it is for God's greater purpose to use them as his vehicle of bringing blessing to all the nations of the earth, which was God's promise to Abraham. You notice uh, the phrase treasured possession. And uh, we tend to think of that as like, God's like, oh, I delight in you. And you know, that's, that's okay. That's okay. There's implications down the road where God does delight in you. But you know, treasured possession in the Hebrew referred to the private wealth of a king. See, the king owned everything. He owned all the highways. He had all the national wealth. It was under his jurisdiction. But the segula, with the treasured possession, was his personal royal treasure. The whole earth is God's. It is simply his good pleasure that makes us his treasure. But we are his treasure by being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His special people set apart for his purposes. So what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? You know, this is uh, before God formally instituted the priesthood. uh, But they certainly knew about priestly roles throughout Genesis and early Exodus. The priests were the means by which God brings the people to himself and brings himself to the people. They're mediators. And what God is saying is, I have set you apart. I have saved you. I have rescued you for a purpose. And that is to be the means by which which I will bring the knowledge of me to the nations. This is their identity and role in God's story. 
The job of the priest was to help people see God. And a kingdom of priests has a calling to help the nations see God. Show the world who he is. It's as if God is saying up front, you will be for me to all the rest of the nations what your priests will be to you. And then, of course, that entails a quality of life, being a holy nation. A nation is what God promised to make out of Abraham's seed. A holy and priestly nation is part of God's means by which he's going to accomplish his broad, far-reaching plans and purposes for the world. Holiness includes the whole of life. And what you see over and over again is God saying, I don't want you to be like Egypt, where you came from. I don't want you to be like Canaan, where you were going. I want you to be distinctive. Belonging to me, having your relationship with me worked out in all of your life. In social welfare, and employment law, in workers' rights, in disability. All that's in the book of the covenant. In how you love and how you forgive. And how you use your money and how you use your power and how you use your sex. Because you are to be a contrast society. Intended to arouse the curiosity of your neighbors. Saying, who is this God? Do you notice all of this is missional? In orientation. And this fitting into the story of God's saving purposes. This is who God wants his people to be in the midst of all the nations of the earth. So as Israel is being called out to live a life of grateful obedience as a redeemed people. But they're also being called to live in a way that represents the identity and character of God as missional people. Obedience looks back to God's accomplished salvation, but it also looks forward to God's intended mission. This moment is not just about Israel getting blessed. They already were. It is about forming and shaping them into a people who will be a blessing. If you obey, if you keep covenant, then you will be. Listen, the relationship at this moment, as we call this a DTR, Uh, It's getting pretty serious. In fact, it's getting formally exclusive. It always should have been because he's God, but now it's getting clearer and clearer, which is why the first command is you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 3 of chapter 20. Now, think about this for a second. Uh, How do you know a relationship is getting serious? When it gets exclusive. We're not dating anybody else, are we? Right? You're like, oh, it's getting serious. And, and you know that serious is formalized when you say what? Forsaking all others till death do us part. That is what is happening in this moment. And this invitation to exclusivity is there because it's an invitation to intimacy with God. The rules are sweet Because they flesh out what it means to live in relationship with God who says, I will be yours and you will be mine. And if you think for a moment, don't relationships falter because other loves enter into the picture? You you hear a wife say, he loves money more than he loves me. You hear a husband say, she loves the kids more than she loves me. And what God is saying up front is, Have no other gods before me. I have loved you. I have called you to myself. Right? No other loves are to be in between us. See, this isn't just anyone laying down the law. This is Yahweh, their redeemer. 
And he is saying, because I have rescued you and brought you into relationship with me, here's how I want you to respond to my grace. The rules aren't given to save us, but the rules are given to shape us into the kind of life, into the kind of people that God wants us to be. And the purpose is bringing glory to him throughout the earth. Got it? All right, here's the second thing. And I know I said, if you only remember one thing or listen to one thing, listen to the first point, I'm gonna back off that. Just listen to this one, okay? The rules were given not to save us, but to shape us. And the rules were given to lead us by breaking us to the glory of God in Jesus. And this is why I included chapter 24 at the end of this section. In Exodus 24, something really important has taken place. It's the ratification of the covenant. And this was common in the ancient Near East. This is how how you do formal acceptance of terms. And you can think about it like this. These are marriage vows being taken by Israel. Israel says yes to God. And in those days, the way that was formalized is not by signing papers. You didn't sign a marriage license and then send it off to the county clerk. What you had was a blood ritual. And the blood ritual meant something like this. If we don't do everything we've promised, may our blood be shed. And I want you to notice that two times in this section, the people say, we will do everything. Verse 3 and verse 7. I almost think about this as like, this, is, this will be the wedding video for Israel in their history. That they go back and they watch. And they can be, remember the promises that they have made. We will do everything. We'll do it all. God says, if you will. And they say, we will. But they won't. Not even close. And neither will you nor I. And yet God is 50 steps ahead of them. Because on the one hand, that bloody ritual is a blood oath. If I don't keep my promises, may this be done to me. But on the other hand, it involves blood sacrifice that establishes the relationship, atoning sacrifice. This is what Moses was instructed to do in the book of the covenant, is build an altar, read the law, the terms of the relationship, make sacrifices. And those sacrifices become a part of Israel's story throughout its history. You know, this is one of the reasons that God gives so much time and attention to blood sacrifice in Israel's worship. You know what he's doing? He's teaching them the grammar of salvation. And why is he teaching them the grammar of salvation? So they can understand the story. You can't understand the story if you don't get the grammar. And over and over and over again, we see the covenant renewed through blood sacrifice. Why? Because when you realize what God calls you to, and you get honest with your heart, and I get honest with mine, it actually breaks us. Because we realize that we are a people who enthusiastically say, we will, we will do it all. We will do everything. But if we were to actually say, we'll be like some, some of the time, uh, some of the things, right? When it feels right. And over and over and over again, 
this law, these rules, break the people of God. And the question becomes, how do you get to experience his glory and his presence when you don't keep covenant? When you find yourself breaking the rules? And here's the beautiful thing. God had a purpose all along. And these blood sacrifices, they set the table They established the scene. They gave the grammar of salvation until that great day when God would go all in. When his son Jesus showed up, speaking to a people completely saturated in the book of Exodus, by the way. And on that night, he held up a cup and he said, this cup is the the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of lambs, but the blood of the lamb. And on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed. He received the curses of the covenant so that we could have the blessing. Because not only are we saved by grace, we stay saved by grace. And one of the beautiful parts of this story is that Moses is acting as a mediator in this moment. And we're told at the end of chapter 24 that he went up into the cloud, the glory cloud. And we're told that when he comes down, it's like his face glowed from being in the presence of God. And he's given all these words to them. But here's the beautiful thing about how the story goes. Is that Moses could go up and then he could come back. But Jesus actually brought the glory down. In John chapter 1, we are told that we see the glory of God in Jesus. That he is actually God in the flesh, tabernacling, tabernacling, uh, dwelling with us, showing us who God is and what he's like. And then all these strands of the story begin to tie together around him. He is the obedient son. He is the faithful Israelite. He becomes the bloody sacrifice. He is our great high priest who can enter in. He's the glory of God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And do you know what happens in this story? is the whole thing gets an upgrade, retold and rewritten about Jesus. I was looking at this and almost falling over myself how I never had seen this before, is that if you read Peter's first letter, it's like a retelling of the Exodus story. He says, you are a people called out. You've been, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, sprinkled with Jesus' blood. You are called to be holy as God is holy. That's 115. You're redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Chapter 1 verses 18 through 19. He says, you have been called out of darkness and into the light that you may declare his praises. Right? That's mission. And you're to do so by going out and living such, such distinctive lives that people glorify the Father in heaven. It's all being redone in Jesus and an upgrade, a much better basis for the relationship, a redemption that is far better than a rescue from slavery in Egypt, a redemption that is from sin and death. It's like Peter is saying to the people of Jesus, you've had your exodus experience. You now know who you are. You know what story you're a part of. Listen, God is forming and shaping 
a people for himself and for his purposes in the world. And I just want to say that should be good news in a cultural moment where we are struggling so much to find meaning and purpose. Where we are asking the question, where do I belong? How do I fit in? You know, I had a conversation uh, years ago with one of my children. And uh, it was during a season, troubling season, no need to go into the details. But we had this conversation where we were talking to her about why are you doing what you're doing? And what she said to us is, because I was bored. And doing this is fun. And I had one of those moments where I had never thought this in my life. But it's like these words like filled into my mouth and then came out. And this is what I said. You will never cure boredom with fun. You can only hold it off for a while. The only way to cure boredom is with meaning. You need to know who you are and what you are called to. And this is the story that God has given us in Scripture. And by the way, it has rules. And the rules aren't there to save us. The rules are there to shape us into a different kind of life as his people. That when people enter into the church, they should see something distinct. And the way we roll up our sleeves and get involved in the messes with each other. And the way we love and the way we give our time, our money. And the way that we're willing to live out the grace and love that has been given to us in Christ. But you know what else? In becoming a part of God's people, you actually can become a different kind of person. So when you actually trust God's grace, when you understand you're saved by his grace, when you recognize you're accepted on the basis of his grace... When you stop trying to prove yourself all the time, the organizing principle of your life changes. The default organizing principle of the human heart is how can I use you to enhance me? And we feel it everywhere, don't we? But the organizing principle that's at the heart of the covenant that God makes with us, it actually changes us into the kind of person that says, how can I use me to enhance you? God is calling a people to himself. He's cleansing them. He's making them holy. He's faithful where we are not. And he wants to use us for his purposes in the world. That's the challenge of Exodus 19 through 24. This is God's covenant. These are his rules. These are the terms of the relationship. But they are not given to save us. They're given to shape us for his purposes. But when they break us again and again and again, they lead us to see the glory of God in Jesus, which is why we worship every single Sunday to remember the story, to have our hearts re-anchored in the good news of what Jesus has done. Cleansed, made new, and then sent out to live for a story that is bigger than ourselves. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would work above and beyond and even against the inadequacies of a sermon that tries to cover such a large territory. But God, help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who was faithful where we are not and the one who by his spirit can cleanse us and make us new. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people 
who are encountering Jesus again and again and again, and it's reshaping our lives so that we go out to live for something bigger than ourselves. Lord, we desperately need you to do this, and so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.